We answer members' questions on the Supreme Court's income and use standard, the different effects of federal court rulings, and the future of gun culture in America. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today. It goes out every week on Friday. Uh, if you want to keep up with the latest gun news in America, all across the country, uh, you can also buy a membership if you want to help support our reporting uh, and get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of news and analysis that you will not find Anywhere else, you also get early access to this here podcast and the opportunity to be on the show and participate in our special question and answer episodes. You'll be able to ask us the questions. And I bring this up because that's exactly what we're doing this week. I have with me uh, faithful contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing all right, Stephen. Uh, excited to do another Q&A episode. It's been a little little while since we've done one, but these are always fun yeah. just to see sort of the insightful questions that our, our members uh, send in to us. So I'm looking forward to it. Yes, I'm always impressed by uh, the questions we get for these. You know, our members are very knowledgeable folks who have really good questions, I find, uh, and uh, probably better informed than most of the people out there writing about guns these days. But um yeah, so why don't we get rolling here? What's uh, what's one of the first questions we got? Sure, yeah. So this first one here comes to us from Stephen Norris. Um, and he asks, he says, reporters regularly ask the White House staff about the confiscation of assault weapons and semi-automatic firearms, as if that's a reasonable option to curb gun violence. Is there any chance that gun confis- confiscations could actually be enacted from the federal level? And does the federal government have any authority to legally ta- or to take legally obtained firearms? And what protections are in place for legal gun owners to prevent this? Hmm. Uh, so what do, yeah. what do you think there? That's a good question. Um, let me let me lay out, I guess, the nightmare scenario for uh, this. Uh, if you're someone who owns a gun that, that would be targeted in a potential assault weapons ban and confiscation effort, uh, which, by the way, the. The president has not come out and explicitly supported any sort of mandatory buyback. He his position has been to want uh, want to ban sales and then register all of the currently owned ones. I'm sure that's not much of a uh, comfort to to people opposed to this policy, but that that's his stated position. He was uh, his, the press secretary was recently asked about whether he supports uh, confiscation. And didn't say no. So that's another thing where it's like probably not very comforting uh, to, to many gun owners the way that the president's messaging has been on this issue. But um, the nightmare scenario, I guess, would be the president wins re-election and wins majorities in both houses. And it's, on, it's exceedingly unlikely that he'll be able to get to 60 votes in the Senate um, among Democrats, you're probably not going to have 60 Democratic senators after this cycle. This cycle is pretty favorable towards Republicans in terms of who's up for re-election in what states uh, in the Senate. So if he wins re-election, he certainly will 
it's almost guaranteed he'll carry the House, and so Democrats will have control almost certainly of the federal government again. But um, the real concern you would have is that they pick up a couple of seats, you know, 54, 55 Senate seats. Then the filibuster may be on the chopping block. It's entirely possible. Um, the only thing that's kept them from going down that path have been a couple of, at least publicly, you know, we, we don't know exactly what goes on behind the scenes in the Senate. And oftentimes you'll see a senator sort of put forth as the, the one person blocking some unpopular thing uh, when really many of their colleagues also don't want to do that thing. But, uh, you know, it's it's not outside the realm of possibilities that the filibuster could be eliminated and then they could pass through a bunch of um, different policies, including an assault weapons ban and maybe confiscation or mandatory buyback that has become increasingly popular on the Democratic side of the aisle. Uh, certainly not. It's not something that I could see a lot of the more moderate Democrats in the Senate going for, but um, it's not impossible, I guess, is what I would say. I don't know. What, what do you think on the the feasibility of this? Is that, does that sound like a scenario that could happen to you? Yeah, you know, and especially in the near to medium term, I don't foresee that being a federal policy. Uh, I know, obviously, that's stays on the sort of the forefront of gun owners minds here, because you look at, mm -hmm. you know, other Western countries have instituted very similar policies. The famous example, yeah. obviously, is Australia after the mass shooting in the mid 90s, where they did a mandatory buyback of all semi automatic weapons. Uh, Canada right now is is sort of it's it's been a prolonged process because it's a lot harder than I think the government initially understood, but they are yeah. technically instituting a mandatory buyback of quote unquote assault weapons. So obviously, this people look around and see that these policies are going on in other countries. But as you said here, just the political realities at the federal level, it's very tough to imagine one, the Democratic Party having the numbers to get something like this through and two, having sufficient moderate Democrats who may be willing to ban the sale of assault weapons, but right. I think would be hard pressed to come down and vote for a mandatory confiscation effort. So I don't really I see mean, it happening. Yeah, I, I mean, I think even an assault weapons ban on like a sales ban would be hard for them to get to, uh, even if they do recapture everything, even without a filibuster in place, because right. uh, it's a very unpopular policy in a lot of these states that these senators would be coming from, uh, you know, and it's not it's actually not a very popular policy at the national level either. It's as we've documented the last couple of years, the support for an assault weapons ban uh, and, you know, assault weapons, that's a very nebulous term, as we've discussed before. It's the definition varies from state to state on what constitutes an assault weapon under these bans. Um, generally speaking, they're trying to target things like AR-15s and AK-47s, although usually the definitions go well beyond just those rifles. Uh, but, uh, you know, these are very popular firearms in a lot of these states that these senators come from. And this is a, there's a reason that the Senate never took up the assault weapons ban that the House passed, right? I mean, it wasn't because Republicans stopped them. Uh, Democrats had control of the body at that point. They didn't want to take that vote. I mean, that's just the bottom, the, the reality of it. Um, it was hard to get, it was hard to get it passed in the House where Democrats had control and the House is, you know, um, bare majority vote. So, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it, there has been a sort of, renewal of interest in assault weapons bans among 
you know, your deeper blue states over the last two years here, somewhat surprisingly to me, I mean, I had written that this, that the era of assault and his bands was over. Right. Uh, and now we're seeing a bit of a resurgence. I think you've written though that, uh, and I agree with you that this is probably more of a sort of, uh, it's probably more of a phenomenon of the, the fact that these are unlikely to survive constitutional scrutiny in the, in the near term, they're probably going to be struck down. And so you're seeing some rally to this, uh, in a way that you see with policies that are unlikely to go into effect. Um, you know, that's, that's why you'll see like a lot of symbolic, uh, legislation that'll get through in circumstances where there's, it's never to have going to have a chance of actually becoming law. And then when the same lawmakers have a chance to pass that for real, oftentimes it doesn't actually happen. Right. Yeah. You know, hopefully that makes sense to people. There, there's a sort of, there's a sort of period where you, people are politicians are much more comfortable sending, you know, doing symbolic messaging bills than they are being actually responsible for passing things that may end up being unpopular. Um, and I think that might be what we're seeing here, or at least part of it. Uh, but as far as protections from this possibility go, I mean, I think it's just kind of the Second Amendment would be the the bottom line uh, when when you're talking about confiscation of popular firearms, or even just sales bans of popular firearms, um, there isn't really like a, there's, I don't know that there's a federal law that says you can't confiscate, you know, there might be some federal law that says, oh, mass confiscation is illegal. But it's, if they can pass a law that says we're going to confiscate the guns, they can repeal whatever federal law might be in place uh, to that effect. And so you're, you're more, uh, likely to see the, the Constitution itself, the Second Amendment itself, be what would protect uh, gun owners in this scenario. Because, I mean, you've already seen the court signal, at least, that bans on AR-15s are not constitutional because they granted, vacated, and remanded the Fourth Circuit's uh, decision upholding Maryland's assault weapons ban. And that's now that's still going through the courts, but it, it implies that they don't necessarily agree with the outcome of that. At the very least, they want them to go back through under the new Bruin standard and do the case over again. Um, to me, that implies that they they don't agree with the previous outcome of upholding that law. So uh, we'll we'll see uh, where I think really the action is going to be on these state assault weapons bans instead of a potential federal, like the nightmare scenario I laid out, I do not think is a very likely scenario to happen. It's not impossible, um, depending on how poorly or well the Republicans do in this next election or Democrats and vice versa, like how that all comes out could determine a lot of things, but I don't, I don't think it's super likely that you would see an assault weapons ban on sales pass at all, uh, let alone, go to the next step of actual confiscation. Right. Yeah. No. And just to you know, put a fine point on that, that here where I'm at in Colorado, uh, an assault weapons ban at the state level is a live proposition. And it's mm -hmm. very, it's a deep blue state. Democrats have trifecta control of all ever levels of government. And even they in that bill were initially going to go for a possession ban, which is essentially gun confiscation. 
And even among almost supermajority Democratic control, they stripped that from the bill because that was too controversial for their members to even be associated with at the introductory level before it even was time to take a vote. So that just tells you sort of where the politics are on the confiscation yeah. end of things and why it's probably unlikely. And that ban is seems like it's probably not going to pass, even the, just the sales ban in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very uncertain to say the least uh, whether or not it'll make it through. While you know five other gun bills have sailed through the the legislature, yeah. this assault weapons ban is kind of you know stuck in place right now. Yeah, it's definitely harder to do hardware bans um, than it is to do other forms of gun control, uh, from what we've seen over the last five or ten years in the states, but. Uh, actually, the exact same scenario played out in Virginia, where I live, uh, a couple of years ago, 2020. We had the we had several gun control bills passed, universal background checks, red flag laws, but the assault weapons ban started off as a confisc uh, a ban on possession, which is effectively confiscation because you can't you can't keep the guns legally, and then that got stripped right away and then the ban still didn't pass even though the governor in our case was was very much in favor of passing it um it sounds like colorado's governor right now polis is opposed to it so anyway we will see where those how that works out but but yeah i think that's the reality of these bans they're not they're not actually very popular uh even in deep blue states i mean you know, it's taken until now for Illinois to pass one. Uh, we, we will probably see another one in Washington, it sounds yeah. like. Um, so it's not there has been a bit of a resurgence. You're going to have three new ones uh, after 20 years of no movement on the on that front. Um, so I don't want to underplay that, but it's uh, it's but it, you're also just probably going to see them all go away. I would think I think that's much more likely than having a national ban and confiscation effort pass. Uh, frankly, I think it's much more likely to see the Supreme Court do away with its weapons bans in the next couple of years uh, than it is to have a new national ban come up. No, I think, so, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next question. This one's from uh, an anonymous member didn't, didn't want their name disclosed, which is always uh, any member's prerogative. Um, and this one talks about uh, this is actually a really interesting one to me because it, it talks about um, you know sort of the culture of of gun politics right now. And so they they say I've seen a lot of confidence from gun rights activists that the tides are turning towards protecting American Second Amendment rights. I live in Highland Park, Illinois, where of course the first new statewide assault ban in ages recently came into law, and for obvious reasons, a focal point for anti-gun sentiment and activism, my fear is that it often feels like the expansion of 2A protections is fueled particularly through the courts, thanks to the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin. The states, by and large, which have expanded firearms rights are, quote, red, with no sign of similar developments ever coming to pass in blue states, you know, quote, blue states. Uh, hostility towards gun ownership and owners seems to only be escalating as their status as a targeted Outgroup for one party further cements itself with AR-15s in particular being ideologically shorthand, ideological shorthand, and people feeling they know all of one's other political beliefs based on one's position on AR-15s. Sorry, sorry for the long preamble. No worries. That's very uh, well thought out. But my question is this. Is the current expanded protection of 2A rights built on foundation of sand? It seems like 
that will be one of two big litmus tests for the appointment of future SCOTUS justices by either party. And all it will take is two justices dying in office at the wrong time for Bruin to be revisited. That seems like it would be a major political priority for one party. Uh, is there a reason I should feel confidently hopeful about the longer term future of gun rights in America? All right, good. This is a really good question. Yeah. Um, that I think gets at sort of, obviously we focus a lot on short-term stuff. We're, you know, we're a news publication. And so we're, we're focused on what's going on, the current events as they happen week to week, day to day. But this gets at sort of the longer term trends, which I think is really interesting. Um, and, and I, I think this member has hit on a really insightful point about where we're at in the gun rights movement or in the gun, you know, with guns in America generally. Um, well, I want to get your thoughts first, Jake. What do you, what's your reaction? Well, to the, just to the core question, first of all, I agree with you. It's a very insightful sort of setup and question of sort of where we're at, but just to the core question about whether the current gun rights protections are built on a foundation of sand. I don't think so just because Bruin is such a robust, sort of framework for how you evaluate Second Amendment cases and Second Amendment law going forward. So I wouldn't say it's built on a foundation of sand. With that being said, I think this member hits on something that's very real, where you can't have a disparity between a legal regime in Bruin on one hand, and maybe a culture over the years broadly turning against uh, that right, the right that that regime protects. I think that's unsustainable in the long term. So I think he's very much right that that dynamic does, in fact, matter, because, as he said, uh, even though the Supreme Court is supposed to be above the fray, above politics, they are appointed by politicians who are not above the fray. And all it takes is a few new appointees who maybe don't agree with current Second Amendment jurisprudence and everything changes. Um, and so culture long term matters. Views on this stuff from the political realm matters. Um, but as it stands now, I wouldn't say that current protections are quote unquote built on sand. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of, uh, the practical end of things. Bruin is unlikely to be overturned for a long time, even though the, this, this member hits on a very real reality, a very true, uh, description of, of where things are at. And yeah, if two justices were to be replaced by a Democrat, you could see a revisiting of Bruin, uh, of Heller, and uh, that's true. But the, the reality is that most of those justices are pretty young, and it's unlikely that they're going to be replaced anytime soon. Um, you know, uh, I think Thomas is the oldest of them. Uh, certainly, he's uh, not a spring chicken. But I don't think he he's not 80 years old either. Right. right? So um, I, I think it'll be a while before you get a significant ideological change in the court, at least from the justices passing away from natural causes. You know, obviously, you never know what, you know, somebody could. Scalia's death was not something that people saw coming necessarily. You know, RGB was was quite old. Um and so it wasn't necessarily shocking when she passed away. Uh, and But you don't have someone necessarily like that on the court right now, especially on the more conservative end. Most of them are, are pretty young and they're going to be on there for the next 20 years, at least, I would think, 15. 
Um, so that's a long time, especially in politics. Certainly at the same time, I think that this member has hit on an important point about the nature of partisan politics and how it's interacting with gun politics at this point in time where you're seeing increasingly the issue be um, completely polarizing where Republicans are the pro-gun party and Democrats are the anti-gun party and there really isn't a lot of crossover left between the two of them. Now, how long that can stay the case remains to be seen. Um, generally speaking, parties will try to appeal to more people so that they can win elections. And one way to do that is by moderating on certain issues. You know, which party goes which way would be the bigger question, I guess. Um, certainly, this is one of the dangers that you have when you're when your entire ideological movement is centered in a single party. You know, you look at the NRA endorsements, for instance, over the last several decades, and you know, they used to be far more bipartisan than they are now. They're almost, I don't think they endorse any Democrats now. And I think that's a function of two different things. It's a push-pull thing. I would, from my point of view, it, that's sort of become the natural um, there, there are fewer Democrats around who have views that the Republican that the NRA would that that share views with the NRA, right? And so that's part of it. It's sort of the parties have become increasingly polarized um, over the last good while here, decade or so, and so you've seen the part the Democratic Party move away from the gun rights movement. But I think at the same time, you've also seen the NRA and the gun rights movement move away from the Democratic Party and more towards the Republican Party, and especially with the NRA, towards Donald Trump in particular, um, really wraps their entire identity up in uh, with his political movement, uh, which is a very, very um, polarizing political movement in and of itself. Donald Trump is an extremely polarizing figure. And so when you tied yourself so closely to him, the danger becomes that if he is unpopular, uh, which he is, right? If if the the Republican Party that you're so closely tied to fails to uh, pivot and become, find ways to become a majority party, I mean they haven't won the popular vote in the presidential election since George W. Bush's reelection. Like that's not a good trend uh, for a political party, and. You know, if you're tied your entire movement's future to that one party and that party doesn't adjust to become majoritarian, you're in you're in a bad spot. Um, but I will say that one thing that uh, to keep in mind here is the recent influx of new gun owners yeah. from demographics that tr aren't traditionally Republican. Uh, that aren't traditionally gun owners, you know, some of the largest, the fastest growing parts of the gun owning community are minorities, women, um, younger people, more uh, urban and suburban people. And so that has the possibility to change the calculation for, for both political parties moving forward, right? Um, 
I would think especially for the Democratic Party. Now, the grain of salt with that is it might take a long time um, and it might not be as strong of an effect as uh, gun owners might hope, right? Because there's a lot of talk about single issue voters out there, right? But um, a lot, most people don't vote on a single issue. And if, you know, if, if you're making them choose between one issue they care about and every other issue they care about, you're diametrically opposed on, it's, you're going to have trouble turning that person out to vote for you, I would think. Yeah. Um, so uh, that would be my, I don't know. What, what do you think? Like, do you, do you see these new gun owners as a potential uh, sea change in this regard? Cause he's right. I think mostly when you're, if you're in a blue state right now, your entire hope for uh, removing some of the restrictions that exist is the courts. Right. Uh, there just isn't really a strong political, uh, uh, a strong political movement in those blue states for gun rights at this point. No, I, I think that's right. And I'm, I'm living through it here in Colorado, just seeing how the sta- yeah. this state's shifted over the years. Uh, it used to be both parties didn't touch gun bills because there were consequences in 2013 when they passed the first really big package of gun control bills, including a magazine capacity restriction and universal background checks. The Democratic president of the Senate was recalled from office and two other yeah. Democrats were recalled. It was a, it was just like verboten. And now it's sort of carte blanche, open season. And as you said, the only recourse is really the courts. And I think you're right. I think the, the point you made about this issue becoming so polarized polarized on partisan lines uh, is, is insightful because that's, you know, that's what's changed the calculus for these politicians. And as you said, blue states where who cares if they, you know, piss off the NRA or they piss off gun owners because that's not their voting block anymore. Um, right. And the courts are as, yeah, the courts are really the only option there, I, I think, other than a long-term change in the culture, which as you said, it's hard to see, even if these new gun owners are sympathetic towards gun rights now, having a whole host of other political considerations on your mind makes it hard to vote for the other party just because they value that one issue the same way you do. Right. While every other issue you feel differently about. Yeah. Especially because in a lot of these states that are trending blue, uh, now not everyone, right? Like Georgia's trending blue, but their Republican party has managed to, for the most part, I mean, obviously the Senate races, they've done a terrible job, but, uh, (laughs) You know, the, their governor has done a good job of of um, remaining relevant politically and, and matching the the constituency there. But you've seen a lot like California, Colorado's a lot of these states that are trending blue. The Republican Party is is not tr- is not uh, trying to match that at all. Like they're not trying to moderate in ways to win elections. They're really oftentimes moving the opposite direction. Um becoming more, uh, I don't know, they're becoming less competitive, right? And less interested in being competitive, I guess would be the way I point it, that I put it nicely. Uh, you see this in with Democrats too. It's not just Republicans. Florida has, you've seen some of this in Florida with their, with the Democratic Party there is becoming less, less and less relevant. And I think less and less interested in, in actually winning. Um, but Usually that, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily last forever. A party might reform itself. Sometimes it, it kind of does like California is probably never going to have a 
Republican Party that's actually competitive for state elections. But, um, you know, and, and there are states where that's true on the other side, too. But I don't know. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's certainly something that should that is concerning. I think you're better off having the courts on your side than um, having uh, one or two more states where the they're not as hostile. But I think overall, there are significant consequences to this trend of trying to, uh, especially interest groups like the NRA, which is not the only one doing this. The ACLU would be another example of a group that's gone from a civil rights group to more of a liberal identity group um, to the detriment of their own mission oftentimes. And yeah. you've seen that the NRA too. Like they've gone from more of a gun group to more of a conservative identity group. And um, the, the problem with that is you're going to lose uh, anyone who isn't doesn't identify as conservative, right? And and there are plenty of people who own guns in America that don't identify that way. Yeah, um, who, who might even be very start staunch gun rights supporters, but don't hold to whatever the Republican um, party line is these days. So um, anyway, that good stuff to keep in mind. I say before we move on, I just want to make one quick point because it, it yeah. makes it's. An interesting point to bring up because it, it makes a case if you care about gun rights, you shouldn't just rest on your laurels knowing that you have Bruin in your back pocket because culture matters and persuading otherwise gettable voters matters um, mm. by, as you said, moderating on some of your, your stances. Because, you know, even if you say, yeah, well, these blue states can keep passing gun control, but we'll sue and it'll eventually get overturned. That's often a years long process. And that's not, yes. you know, it's not ideal for folks living in that, those states who care about their gun rights. So. Yeah, I think absolutely. it's important to point out. And and I think that this uh this member's overall point about long-term problems being that if you're relying on the court, uh then you also have to rely on your party winning elections to be the ones to appoint yeah. uh members to the court. And if that's not happening, then eventually, yes, there there will be a threat to to precedents like Bruin and, and Heller. I mean, we, that's just what will happen uh, eventually. Um, so yeah, th that's, that's long-term. You might, this is like, there's a sugar rush involved with, uh, you know, trying, basically trying to appeal to your core, you know, your core donor group in the NRA, for instance, by noticing that, Hey, our core donor group is very conservative Republicans. So let's start talking about immigration. Let's start talking about vaccine mandates. Let's talk about all this stuff. There's nothing to do with guns um, because people who are a core donor group like it. The same thing with ACLU, right? Like all sorts of identity stuff that they've gotten into that is, or even like um, coming out against the Second Amendment, for instance, <laughs> right. as a civil rights group. They right. may not. They may have never been super. Um, involved in second amendment litigation but now they're like actively saying that the second amendment protects no rights and that that's to signal to their donor their core donor base who are liberal democrats that hey pay attention to us give us money because we you know we are where we believe the same things you believe so but and and that'll get you some money in the short term i think but in the long term it alienates a lot of people too um, yeah. So I don't know that the trade-off is worth it. But anyway, we'll move on to the next question. Uh, uh, Joe Francella 
asks, what does it mean when we have split decision decisions in different appellate courts, um, districts in terms of what's legal and what's not legal, what's enjoined and what is the government still empowered to enforce? Uh, and he he's points to the recent ghost gun rule um, decisions out of the Fifth Circuit uh, as, as sort of an example of that we can talk about. And, and uh, that's a good question, right? Because it can often be very confusing uh, when you're talking about federal court rulings, because federal court, I think people assume that when a judge says something, rules something is unconstitutional, that means that, of course, they can't, the government can't enforce this unconstitutional law. But that's not exactly true, right? right. Uh, not always. Usually, Injunctions only pertain to the circuit that they're delivered in. So the Fifth Circuit is what Texas and Louisiana, I believe, is yep. is Mississippi in there too? Oh, I think it's just it, like part of Louisiana too. Yeah, yeah. So it's mostly Texas, but um, you know, um, for instance, the, yeah, the ghost gun rules. Also, they can they can be issued against um, <clears throat> enforcement against specific companies. That this ghost gun rule. These, these decisions that have been issued, there have been a series of them. Um, somewhat odd from my point of view. I'm not a lawyer, of course, but uh, it's not. I don't know why the judge hasn't enjoined the whole law and is just going about enjoining enforcement against these specific companies, especially when the companies he's picking are the biggest companies, right? So the federal government can't enforce its... Uh, it's ghost gun rule against Polymer 80, for instance. But Polymer 80 is the one who makes most of the, the uh, you know, buy build kits or whatever they, whatever they call them. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, uh, there, there are complications with that. The, oftentimes, a ruling is only going to be enforceable in its circuit, wherever whatever circuit the ruling has happened in. That's where it's enforceable now. So usually a federal judge is ruling on, you know, a state law. So uh, <clears throat> the state will still not be able to enforce their law. Uh, and any other state in that circuit won't be able to enforce a similar law. It would be essentially how these things work. And that's actually why you saw, you know, d between Heller and Bruin, there was a lot of litigation um, and, and most, nearly all of the Second Amendment cases failed in that period. And that's because most of the states that have very strict gun laws, you know, California, New York, are in circuits that, are, that have a lot of very uh, left liberal judges, right, who are more inclined to uh, uphold these laws. And so you're not getting Fifth Circuit, uh, which is a much more conservative uh, circuit, right? You're not getting them ruling on things like assault and spin because Texas doesn't have assault and spin to be right. challenged. California does. And so you get the Ninth Circuit to rule on these things. And so that's one reason why you, you didn't see a ton of, um, you know, a, a ton of these cases uh, out of the more conservative circuits. Now you're seeing them uh, against federal laws. And one, one thing to note is <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, for instance, the um, domestic violence restraining order prohibition, 
right? There was a ruling in the Fifth Circuit from the entire circuit that said, or sorry, from the from a panel that said you, uh, the federal government can't enforce a ban on the ownership of firearms by people who have who are subject to a domestic violence restraining order. And the federal government has appealed that. Now that only applies technically in the Fifth Circuit. And so the government could, in, in theory, continue to enforce this law elsewhere. Uh, but it creates a situation where you have uneven enforcement of a federal law. And generally the courts, the Supreme Court doesn't like those situations. It doesn't like right. that. Uh, you know, nobody really wants that to be the case. So they want to, usually you'll get the government appealing these decisions and the Supreme Court will take these cases uh, over other cases. And so that's why you're likely to see, I think Jake Charles and I talked about this on the last podcast, but you're likely to see that be one of the next second on the cases that the court actually takes up. No, I, I agree. I think that's the key point in terms of what it practically means, you know, when two circuits, either one circuit rules one way for on a federal law, or perhaps two federal circuits rule opposite ways on a case is in practical terms, what that means is you're very likely to then see the Supreme Court step in because as you said, they don't yeah. really like it when federal law is applied different ways in different places. It doesn't really make sense for the uniformity of the law's sake. Uh, right. Creates and that, disparities those circuit splits are really important. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, like, it's one, th it's one thing when the, there's a federal law that gets struck down in a circuit, you don't necessarily need to wait for a circuit split to develop. But usually when you hear people talking about circuit splits, what they're talking about is like a state, one state has an assault weapons ban and it gets struck down by the fourth circuit, for instance, that's just hypothetical. Um, and then another state, you know, so Maryland's assault weapons ban gets struck down, let's say, but California's gets upheld by the, so the fourth circuit and the ninth circuit have different views on whether this law is constitutional under you know supreme court precedent and so that's that's when you're like much more likely to see the supreme court step in uh because you've got different circuits that basically have different standards of law going on and, and that's what the supreme court is basically there to settle right is these disagreements along the lower courts no i think that's right so, what's the next question yeah, we got a next one from Rob Moffitt, and he asks, as a broad view across all of the FFLs, so federal firearms licensees that have had their licenses revoked by the Biden uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, how many are for serious violations such as refusing admission to the IOI, not performing background checks when required, et cetera, versus paperwork mistakes like entry of the wrong serial number? Um, so basically, he's just asking, we've seen sort of an uptick yeah, in enforcement against FFLs, firearms dealers. And he's wondering, do we know how many of those enforcement actions have been taken because of a serious violation and how many have just been because of clerical errors? So what do you, what do you think on that? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. We don't know. Uh, I think it's the bottom line as far as, you know, the details of why revocations are increasing. Uh, there are some things that we can uh, glean from how this has happened, right? So uh, the Trace has a piece from last year, uh, October last year, that talks about uh, reports that the ATF has um, done three times as many revocations in 2022 as it did the previous year. Um, and this is a result of a, 
concerted effort by the Biden administration to uh, implement what they're calling a zero tolerance policy uh, among FFLs, federally licensed firearms dealers, or federal firearms licensees would be the FFL. But yes, so I think you can kind of glean from this the fact that it's called a zero tolerance policy that, yeah, there probably are some more minor violations that are being turned into revocation requests. Um, You know, there there obviously is a debate over this between the industry and gun control advocates where the gun control advocates believe that the industry is being poorly overseen, poorly regulated by the ATF, that the ATF doesn't have enough resources, that they are too lenient with licensed dealers when they make um, errors or commit, you know, uh, infractions. And so there's been a lot of pressure from gun control groups uh, to have the ATF adopt a zero tolerance policy and and basically just revoke licenses as often as possible. And so that three times number is actually somewhat misleading itself because that's that's the number of actual revocations, which is the most they, they've had since uh, 2008, actually. But uh, that's... There, that, that doesn't include all of the um, times where the ATF has begun the process of revoking someone's license. And then, um, for instance, someone, instead of going through that process, the licensee can give up their, their license instead. And so, and, and the process can take a long time. It's a, it's a you know, legal fight, basically, between the dealer and the, the ATF. And so it can stretch out for a couple of years. So we may not be seeing the full uh, the full result of Biden's zero tolerance policy yet in these particular numbers in the actual number of revocations. Because if you start a revocation process in 2020, 2021, you might not finish it until, you know, 2024 or, or what have you. So. Uh, we're probably just seeing the beginning of this trend, and I would expect that this year will be even more revocations than last year. Yeah, one thing to add, I'm wondering if we might so soon have a better idea of what kind of violations these are for. Um, if listeners will recall, Biden just issued an executive order on guns. Um, it, the main thrust of it was to try to expand background checks by determining mm-hmm. who needs to become an FFL. But part of that executive order was essentially like a my words, not his, like a name and shame kind of policy for Mm -hmm. FFLs and violations. So I'm wondering if as that gets executed, perhaps they'll list the violations of of these FFLs. So that's one, you know, potential. That is, that is something that he, that was part of that order that you could start to see um, what the actual infractions were Uh, that, and that's something else that gun control advocates have wanted for a while is basically to release more ATF records into public view, uh, which is another thing the industry has been opposed to because, um, yeah, for instance, they don't, they don't want trace data released because, uh, that can be used to imply that. So for instance, one of the arguments you'll get is, um, well, if a lot of traced guns, crime guns get traced back to the same dealer, then that, must mean that the dealer is doing something illicit uh, for that to be the case when it's not necessarily true, right? Because if you have a gun store near a major city, 
uh, eventually you're the some of the guns sold there will probably end up in uh crime scenes in the city now it'll probably be i think the average time to crime for guns is like eight to ten years so it's not as though the, the guns are going out the door and then immediately ending up at a crime scene i mean certainly if that happens for a dealer uh, often uh the atf is going to look into that dealer more closely i think in most cases so it's but just the this inherent idea of uh, bad apple gun dealers just that they that they're um guns they sell end up in at crime scenes more often than guns sold at other stores well that might just be geographic location the result of that because they're the closest store to that major city or, or what have you uh but anyway so that's one of the critiques that you'll get about some of the um efforts to release different atf data uh, but yes that that is so, certainly something we could see more of um and we depends on how the that plays out. I would also say too, that this trend of trying to revoke licenses far more frequently also coincides with this idea that they want more people to become FFLs. And I think it underscores the, the, the fact that they don't really want people to become FFLs. They just right. don't want them to sell used guns, uh, you know, at gun shows or, or, or where, what have you. So I think that's, that to me has always been a signal that like they're not really trying to get people to become FFLs. They just don't want you to, they want to inject a certain level of uncertainty into selling your, your guns on the private market. Uh, because if they wanted people to be FFLs, they wouldn't institute a zero tolerance policy um, where even a minor infraction could get you, uh, get your license removed. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, yeah. So we, we don't know exactly we have some idea uh, and we may get more information soon, depending on what the Biden administration does with that, that um, executive order. Okay. Um, next one here. This is an interesting question to me too, I think. Um, uh, we're going to do uh, Brad Underwood, Reload member, says uh, something I've been wondering about since Bruin is the phrase in common use. Seems to me that yes, while whatever hardware that is out there today in American society that is in common use should be fair game for gun owners to own for self-defense, um, but that's common use by today's standard. Standards can, can and do change. What will be considered common use in five, 10, or 20 years? New developments and new technologies in the firearm space uh, are obviously not in common use when first entering the market. They are new and therefore uncommon I wonder if one tactic gun control advocates might try is to prevent newer firearms technology from ever being widely adopted. And then due to its quote, uncommon status, it loses some of the protections afforded under Bruin. Uh, but I'd certainly be curious to hear yours and Jake's thoughts on the matter. I think it's a really good question uh, yeah. that gets at one of the critiques of Bruin and Heller that uh, Professor Jake Charles has had uh, who was on the podcast last week. And so anyone who hasn't listened to that episode should go and check it out. But, uh, and I believe he brought this up when he was on the podcast uh, about a year ago as well. But this has been one of the critiques, and you've seen this not just from uh, people critical of the ruling overall, but also from like pro gun 
uh, points of view is this in common use test, which really derives from Miller, actually, the, the case before Heller from the 1930s um, or 40s, where they the, the Supreme Court at that time had decided that short barrel shotguns are not protected by the Second Amendment. Uh, and part of the reason is because they weren't common, uh, commonly owned for self-defense was uh, or for lawful purposes. Uh, they were viewed as like cr criminal guns. That's why they were in the National Firearms Act to begin with. But, well, not really. I guess they were in there because the, the handgun, they tried to have a handgun ban in the NFA. And um, the short barrel stuff was a way to... Um, keep people from just making handguns out of rifles and shotguns. But, uh, but either way, um, yeah, I think this is a legitimate critique of the sort of major standard that backstops all of the second amendments gun jurisprudence at this point, because yeah, it is a problem. Um, what, you know, yeah. What, what happens when there's, there's a new technology that comes out. Can you ban that just because it's not, it's brand new and not in common use. Um, I think at least from a theoretical point of view, it's a pretty good question and critique. Uh, I, I will say though, that in practice, from what we've seen, uh, it's <laughs> the problem has been more the opposite way where you're you see most gun control advocates trying to mandate newer technologies that gun owners don't, and the industry doesn't actually want to implement <laughs> Right. Uh, that's what you've seen to this point uh, with things like micro stamping or uh, smart gun technology, you know, basically biometric locks or RFID locking devices integrated into guns. That's more what you've seen in terms of uh, uncommon firearms technology is that they're the, the gun control advocates are trying to make it force it to be common. Um, uncommon or even unworkable technology, right? And, and usually it's used in a way to try and ban the guns that are already in common use. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, do you see what I'm getting at there? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It's it's funny to, because I take the our, our member's point about, you know, yeah. how can this work for the guns that I care about? But as mm -hmm. you said, it's more more the gun gun control folks that are pushing novel technologies. Yeah. Um, but one other sort of wrinkle to the common use standard, which makes it sort of uncertain is how it'll be applied. So we've seen, for example, things mm -hmm. like stun guns in the Caetano case in 2016. They ruled that right. those were in common use and thus protected. But yeah, you could just as easily. There's a couple easily, hundred thousand of those. Right. There's a few hundred thousand, like you said. And you could just yeah. as easily then use the that estimate to apply that standard to something like machine guns, which there's a couple hundred right. thousand on the civilian market. But mm -hmm. in dicta, in Heller, uh, Justice Scalia said basically that, oh, the Second Amendment doesn't apply to machine guns because they're, you know. So it's like you can see sort of where this uncertainty lies in the common use standard. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's absolutely a great point because that's where I would see the conflict more is with the things that the court has at least in dicta suggested are constitutional to ban that aren't protected by the second amendment, which are things like machine guns. When there are just as many machine guns legally registered out there, uh, even though new ones have been um, outlawed for sale to civilians since 1986, there's already a stockpile of several hundred thousand that exist. Um, and then at the same time, the court says, well, stun guns are in common use. And the, 
for, for lawful purposes. Um, so then there's only, they think they estimated 200 or 250,000 of those, uh, in the, in a footnote in, in that ruling. So, uh, yeah, that there, there's certainly ambiguity in that, in that standard. And, um, and it's also just like, is that a, a sensible standard, right? The, right? Like just because something is uncommon doesn't mean it's not that it's any more dangerous or uh, falls outside of the purview of the second amendment necessarily, or like, why should it? And then just because something is common, doesn't make it any less dangerous. You know what I mean? Like it's just kind of a, uh, the result of a, of a compromise ruling, which is what Heller was, right. They needed to get Kennedy on board. And so I think they had to put in all the caveats about, basically protecting the National Firearms Act and bans on machine guns. Uh, so that's that's where they ended up. And yeah, it does create at least these sort of theoretical issues. I don't know that in practice, I'm seeing a lot of problems with it, right? Like, I don't see a lot of like, attempts to ban uncommon guns. Really, what you're seeing is the opposite attempts to mandate right. uncommon guns. Uh, so, uh, it is interesting, but, but I think that, that the, the member does, they've identified like an, a clear logical, um, issue with the, the main state, of course, you know, then you get into like, what is a better standard? And that's where I don't know that we have a, uh, a great answer for you, but, um, all right, next question we've got, um, Ted, so Reload Member, he says, I'm told gun culture has shifted away from hunting and towards self-defense since the 80s or 90s. Do you expect the broader gun culture to shift back to a, quote, FUD mindset, uh, stay as it is, or move in a new direction in the coming years, decades? If the latter, where do you see it heading? What I think that's an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, so what he's referring to is something that Professor David Yamani has referred to as gun culture 2.0, which is, as the member points out, sort of a transition from a tradition of like sportsmen and hunter culture focused on shotguns and bolt action rifles and the such to a much more self-defense minded culture of gun ownership where handguns are the most common weapon that people purchase. Uh, concealed carry is increasingly very popular. Um, you see this polling data reflects this all the time where you ask people why they're purchasing guns. Now they no longer say it's for skeet shooting or for hunting. They say it's primarily for self-defense, uh, for the, either themselves or their family. And I don't see, I don't foresee it going back to gun culture 1.0 to that old sportsman culture, but I think it will evolve because all cultures do evolve as more and more people get involved as tastes change as yeah. society around us changes. Um, I think it's too difficult for me to read the tea leaves and say exactly where it's going to go, but I, I don't foresee it going back to, as he says, the uh, FUD style of gun culture. <laughs> yeah. So those who don't know, FUD, FUD is like a, it's a derogatory term for somebody who um, basically believe, you know, they own guns, but they only own bolt action rifles or pump action shotguns or double barrel shotguns or what have you. It's kind of like, the president, basically, uh, Joe Biden talks about being a gun owner all the time, but also they don't, they want to ban the guns that they don't own, essentially, AR-15s or Glocks or, um, you know, and so this is the, 
obviously FUD comes from Elmer FUD. So the people are mocking this kind of, of gun owner as somebody who's backwards and um, just cares about keeping their own guns uh, and wants to ban the other guns. So th this is that's where that term comes from, just for anybody who didn't already know that. Um, yeah, and, and I think there certainly we have tons of evidence that this shift has occurred to gun culture 2.0. For instance, NICS checks, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, the FBI background check system, which you need to perform one if you're a licensed dealer anytime you sell a gun to someone who isn't a licensed dealer. And the FBI does break out some of this. It doesn't track it individually or give you models sold or whatever, but it will break it out to long guns versus handguns. And yes, um, not that long ago, actually, I think it was just about a decade ago, you saw handguns start to outsell long guns in the American market. And so that indicates the shift from a focus on hunting. Obviously, hunting is still a very relevant portion of gun culture in the United States. It's just not the dominant portion anymore. Now, the dominant portion is self-defense, home defense, sport shooting. Um, and so... Yeah, the, I think that's only likely to continue. It's also coincides with the demographic shift that we've talked about. That's another aspect of gun culture 2.0. Um, you know, if you're because if it's more urban and suburban people buying guns, they're they're less likely to be out there hunting every weekend um, because they don't live near hunting grounds necessarily. Not that nobody who lives in the suburbs or city hunts; it's just less common. Um, and so. You know, you have seen that change occur. I think you'll continue to see that be the dominating force. And I think that it's likely to have, as we alluded to earlier, a significant impact on the politics of guns long term as well, where I, I just I don't know that it's sustainable that the Democrat, the Democratic Party can continue, ah, sorry, can continue to move the left on the issue uh, in the way that they have. I mean, even President Biden has uh, tried to moderate his mission. His, his, man, I'm really uh, getting tongue-tied here at the end of this podcast. President Biden has tried to moderate his messaging on a lot of issues since, you know, he, since Democrats lost control of the House. You've seen, you saw that in the State of the Union where he, he tried to moderate on a lot of things. The one big exception is guns. He's Whenever there's a, a you know, mass shooting or, or something of that, or any time he talks about guns, really, he doesn't talk about universal background checks or something that polls really well. He talks about assault weapons bans. That's his top priority every time he speaks. And it's not a very popular policy. I mean, it's a 50-50 policy right now with and trending downwards and everything we've seen. Now, there might be a, a, a spike um, after the Nashville shooting. That's that's what we what you tend to see, uh, although you didn't really see that after Uvalde with the assault weapons bans. So it'll be interesting. But, at you know. Um, I don't know how long Democrats can sustain that move to the left on the issue. And at the same time, can Republicans appeal to this new demographic of gun owners when they hold a lot of policies otherwise that these, the, that, um, you know, a lot of minorities and city dwellers don't agree with. Right. Yeah. So that's where I would be interesting to see. And th this just goes back to something we were talking about earlier, but. I think it's a relevant point. No, I think I think that's right. And you've already seen, you know, Joe Biden's 
sort of prerogatives aside, the Democratic, at least gun culture 2.0 has had some effect on the, the Democratic Party's um, sort of prerogatives on guns because handgun bans are no longer even in the conversation mm. anymore. That used to be yes. the dominant, you know, coalescing force for the gun control side of the debate. Organizations were called the National Coalition to Ban Handguns and 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 yeah. now it Hang pulls as low as now it pulls as low as like 18% across the entire electorate, not just among right. Republicans and independents. So at least in some ways you've seen how gun culture shifts do in fact affect uh, politics. Mhm. Yeah, and I think that's that's a that's a great point. And I do it's obviously still early with the solvents bans, but I, you're, right. you may be seeing that same trend. We've talked about this a number of times in the past when these polls have come out. But it, are assault weapons bans trending in the same direction as handgun bans? Handgun bans used to be very popular. Assault weapons bans used to be much more popular than they are now. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where the public ends up on that in the long term, if it continues down this path. Because, you know, we, we talked about it as well. AR-15s have become the most popular rifle in the country. And I don't think that's likely to change anytime soon either. And so as people, um, as more people buy them and more people are exposed to people who own them, you know, support for banning them may continue to decrease, but we'll see. Um, let's do, we got one last question here. Um, from Paul Sh uh, Schock, who is a Relo member, also um, a new gun owner as of the pandemic. So that's, this is exactly the kind of person and, and a liberal gun club member. So uh, exactly the kind of person we're talking about, right? Like somebody who uh, traditionally didn't own guns and uh, is in a, a demographic that, uh, of you know, as far as liberals go, that is not, um, that is going to be part of this long-term trend and how, how things play out politically. I think like, will Republicans ever be able to appeal to somebody like this? Will the Democrats continue to alienate people like this? I don't know. But either way, his question is about the uh, media and uh, language choices. So um, uh, he says, I think it's meaningful and telling that the mass media tend to use different terms for semi-automatic rifles with features depending on who is using them when law enforcement deploys one to save lives or end a threat, the media rarely use the term assault weapon, but instead less threatening terms like patrol rifle or long gun. Um, if, if police are able to use these versatile rifles, carbines for defensive purposes, we can, uh, we who choose to exercise our rights should be able to keep them as well for, for all lawful purposes. Um, and he, he believes that this is uh, there's a coordinated effort to demonize these modern rifles by uh, anti-gun media and politicians. Um, and so uh, uh, they s significantly influence public sentiment about said firearms amongst the, the large se segment of the general public who gets all uh, they think they know about guns exclusively from the media. So this is a discussion about um, media coverage, obviously, but also uh, the difference, the different ways that, for instance, AR-15s are talked about depending on who's using them. And obviously the Nashville shooting would be one example of this because the shooter used an AR-15 pistol uh, and then the police officer who shot them the, to stop the attack also used an AR-15. Uh, but 
one is demonized and one is not. Um, and I just think there's perhaps an interesting conversation here about um, media and uh, I, I don't know. I just have some thoughts on the idea of media coordination. Uh, you know, as somebody who obviously I'm a CNN contributor and uh, have worked in media for a long time now and run, well, we run a publication here about guns. You know, I don't know that the that the that it's coordinated in the sense of, you know, Brady or every town calls up the newsroom and tells them how to report things. I don't think that that happens at all. Um, you do see plenty of um, bias, I think, that comes out of just the fact that a lot of reporters tend to lean left and be living in. Uh, geographically in cities like New York, D.C. and L.A. Um, but, you know, I think that's a significant issue in terms of media coverage and uh, sort of echo chambers that exist. And certainly, you know, certainly either side tries to influence uh, media coverage. And I think the gun control side is has perhaps more effect doing that because reporters tend to um, be fellow travelers oftentimes um, with those groups. So, uh, and, and they just don't get a lot from the, there's not, there's also a tendency not to engage with media from the program side oftentimes, which I think is detrimental. Um, I will say that obviously CNN has been a particularly bright spot on this point in my view, because they, hired, you know, they did hire me to, work with them and they do value my uh my insight into these different questions about how best to cover and what's most accurate way of, of putting things i can tell you that that's something that they absolutely do since i've worked there uh, not just me of course there's also other points of view that they um they consider the whole team the whole fire guns in america team which has a, a a number of different points of view so they're certainly not just getting things from me but they but they do value that and i do think that's been one of the better parts of working with them so far uh, they obviously have me on the shows as well to uh you know give my my thoughts directly to the audience which is great but they all you know it's been nice that they value my input and point of view um on these different questions because they want to get things right and i think most reporters want to get things right to be honest with you um, and most mistakes you see on guns, especially some of the worst ones, come mainly from a place of ignorance. They just don't know any better. And, you know, they, they're taking in information more from like osmosis from the culture, uh, from like Hollywood stuff. You, you see a lot of that, a lot of, I mean, even the president <laughs> right, is, is, you know, talking about shooting guns in the air to scare off criminals and st stuff that's not legal and <laughs> you know, that comes out of Hollywood, but, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, there, there is, there can be a dichotomy in how uh, media covers a gun, depending on who is using it. I think there's sort of a, um, you know, in, in culture at large, there can be a distinction between it's okay for police to have certain kinds of guns, even if they're, uh, you often see politicians call these guns, you know, uh, weapons of war. And more increasingly now you're seeing them call call them weapons of mass destruction as though they're chemical weapons or something like that or nuclear weapons. And it's 
but at the same time, nobody is really trying to restrict police use of them, um, which doesn't really make any sense, right? Yeah, no, I think I, your point is is a good one about it's not coordination so much as it is groupthink um, and kind of bubble think. Yeah, and you have to wonder if some of this dichotomy is sort of in the nomenclature they use for different weapons. If it doesn't just come from police statements themselves, you often hear. Like, for example, after these shootings, a police chief will give a press conference and he'll be asked to describe the rifle that the shooter used. And he'll say, oh, yeah. it was an assault weapon. But if you're asked, OK, well, what happened with the officer involved shooting? Most police departments refer to their their carbines that they use as patrol carbines or patrol yeah. rifles. And so media just parrots, I think, what police say. I think that's very instances. true, too. Yeah, police police can inject their own misinformation into things yeah. just by the way they talk. I mean, they talked about the Nashville shooting and, and look. Um, it's difficult in a scenario like that to be a hundred percent accurate with the first thing that a police spokesperson sure. says. And that's important to keep in mind with all these things. Like you, when you're covering like a breaking news situation like that, it's not, the police are not necessarily going to tell you. Sometimes they'll lie like we saw in Uvalde, um, to make themselves look better too. That's another consideration, but also just the fog of the situation is going to create scenarios where you just don't have the full information or what you're given at first isn't true. Like initially they said there were two AR-15s used in that attack. And we found out later that wasn't actually true. Police use the same. And this is another thing. Yeah. If the police are using a term and the reporter's not familiar with what's going on, like they're not an expert on the topic, they're going to usually defer to whatever the police are saying. So assault yep. style weapon was something the police said a bunch, which is not a real term i mean assault weapon is a nebulous term in and of itself right it has like we mentioned earlier it has a bunch of different definitions depending on what state you're in but assault style weapon isn't even a thing and it's not a, it's certainly not a thing in tennessee where they don't have an assault weapons ban so they're just sort of using slang essentially and you get a lot of reporters are just going to repeat what they said because they don't miss you know they're not experts on this topic necessarily and they're going off what the official told them. Right. Um, and so that's where like CNN has tried to, uh, you know, a good, a good news operation is going to try to figure these things out themselves and talk to experts and get the best way to report things accurately, uh, which I, I think they've tried very hard to do that, um, especially this last week uh, in my interactions with them. Um, and I'm, I'm same with the other uh, people they've hired from from differing points of view, right? Like Jennifer Massia from the Trace gives they get her input too, uh, and you know, Abinay from the Guardian, same thing. Abinay Clayton, she's they get her input, and so they're they're doing their best to try and um, improve this this kind of coverage. And I give them a lot of credit for that. And now, obviously, I work for them, so I don't know people probably how much they um, you know take what I say, but that, that's, that's how I, that's how the experience has been. And so, yeah. And look, I've talked to reporters from every major outlet over the years and including today, I mean, and including like your conservative outlets, they're not necessarily just because they work for a conservative outlet, Fox or the, you know, Washington times or wherever, uh, that they're, they're not necessarily any more informed. They might, be slightly more informed because they've shot a gun before or something. Although there are plenty of people at CNN who've done that or, or the New York times or wherever else, 
you know, just because you've, sh and, and you get a lot, <laughs> you get a lot of former law enforcement or former military uh, who people will assume generally in society and also in media that because they were in law enforcement or because they were in the military, that they're firearms experts. And that's that's not necessarily the case. Um, that's how you get a lot of the most embarrassing stuff that's been out there is uh, that I've ever seen on, on TV or in a newspaper, try, you know, quoting former law enforcement or former military about something gun related. And they just don't know anything. You know, they're just completely wrong. And so some of the worst things I've seen claimed most inaccurate stuff has come from people like that. And so you can get a situation where somebody society assumes this person is going to be an expert on the topic and it's not really true. And that affects media too. You know, it's, it's media is made up of people and they're not immune to the same sorts of faults that the rest of us have, right. Just generally. So I don't know. Anyway, that that's where my thoughts come. In. I don't think it's really a coordinated thing. There are, you know, there's some ways that the gun control groups coordinate with media, mainly in like Hollywood, like they'll try, they'll do, they'll consult on scripts uh, and stuff like that, to some degree, you know, I think, I don't think it's quite as widespread as a lot of people like to think, but, um, you know, occasionally if you see a storyline that talk, that has some gun control aspect to it, it is possible that every town or Brady had some influence on that in, in a TV show or in a movie that does happen. But this general, like, it's, it's not like they're, they've got, you know, lawyers from the gun control group sitting in the newsroom telling them what to write. It's not, that's not how it works. It's a very, uh, it's a much more nuanced and, and uh, different uh, issue when it comes to, um, to to media influence in that way um, than than sort of a caricature like that. I guess would be my would be my main takeaway there. Um, and so I think the best outlets, you know, do their best to try and reach out to people. That's that's often why the conservative outlets or the liberal outlets will reach out to me at least to try and get some, at least my point of view and then I can explain something to them and doesn't, I'm not always right about everything either. Right. So um, it's important to go out and, and do that kind of research. If you want to inform your audience rather than just uh, get things out there quickly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, that's right. Anyway. Um, yeah, I think this is this has been a good episode. We went a little bit long, but uh, it's always a pleasure to take questions from our readers, uh, from our members in particular, people who sustain our reporting and make this whole thing possible. Uh, they always have interesting questions, I think, uh, and certainly stuff that we could go on for much longer about. Right? Uh, but hopefully we've done a decent job of answering some of these questions at least. Uh, get some some more insight because that's the other thing. It's like we're we're always trying to follow whatever the current news is, whatever the big story of the week is, and um, so it's nice to to try to take some questions and see what other what people are wondering about that might not be uh, related to this week's breaking news or what have you. Um, so anyway, that's all we've got for you. If you want to. Head over and sign up for the free weekly newsletter. I'd encourage you to do that. And if you want to become a member and be on the show, ask questions during these Q&As, I would encourage you to do that as well. You can find our our membership options over at thereload.com. And, you know, otherwise, if you're not ready to take that leap, you can like and share this podcast, uh, leave a comment on YouTube or 
uh, leave a review on your favorite podcasting app, wherever you're listening to this. That really helps us as well. But until next week, we, uh, we will see you guys. Know the devil.